Over the past four decades, Bryce Anderson has remained one of the premier voices in agricultural meteorology. As he moves on to the next step in his career, we sit down for one last look ahead, today on Field Posts. Fieldpost is a DTN progressive farmer podcast that dives deeper into the most important trends in agriculture to explore the business's cutting edge. I'm your host, Sarah Mock. Bryce Anderson started his ag meteorology career with DTN progressive farmer in 1991, and since then has been keeping an eye on the weather on behalf of the ag community, carefully following trends both here in the U.S. and around the world. After more than 30 years of forecasting, Bryce is getting ready to transition his career to being Ag Meteorologist Emeritus for DTN and joins us today to reflect on his long and prestigious career, discuss the big weather picture, and look ahead to the coming months one last time. We'll check in on the crazy weather events of the last few decades, talk about how farmers have changed their outlook on dealing with uncertainty, and hear what Bryce thinks about what could be ahead as a new generation takes the reins right after this word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by MyDTN. In today's environment, it's essential more than ever to get the most current and accurate information to help save your valuable resources and continue to be profitable. Get access to all the information you need to deal with this change from DTN. As the leading independent trusted source of actionable insights and market information, MyDTN gives you accurate weather forecasts, the most extensive database of grain bids, and the most timely news and analysis from our award-winning news team. These features and more are available 24-7 via desktop, laptop, and any mobile device to be with you on the go. Learn more at MyDTN.com and start a free 14-day trial. Now, back to the show. Bryce Anderson is officially the Chief Ag Meteorologist Emeritus at DTN Progressive Farmer and joins us today on the eve of his next steps to discuss the career that was and the weather that's still ahead. Bryce, you know, we're a few weeks out from harvest in most places uh, and weather is kind of top of everyone's mind, I think, right now. What are you watching? What are you thinking about at this moment? Well, there are two big things that that, uh, are on my mind right now. Uh, one of them is the evolution of uh, whatever happens with the uh, former Hurricane Ida. Uh, we're talking first of the week, and Ida is a tropical storm kind of uh, moving northward uh, through that lower delta area, I think kind of in northern Mississippi right now. Uh, it is bringing some pretty heavy rain into the deep south, and it already caused a lot of uh, storm surge damage in uh, New Orleans, Uh completely took out the electricity for the entire city of New Orleans and the, uh, the winds ahead of that uh, hurricane were strong enough that they forced uh, the Mississippi to reverse its flow, uh, which is uh, just kind of mind boggling to think about. It does happen and uh, this is what can lead it to happen. Um, the, the track of the storm uh, with the rainfall is focused to kind of curve into the Tennessee Valley and then toward the Southern Appalachians and then northward, um, kind of uh, staying south of the Ohio River and then uh, north, uh, south of the Allegheny River and continuing into New England over the next several days. And I think a key feature is going to be how that track uh, kind of evolves because if it if it uh, relocates northward by even 50 miles, it would be enough to put some very heavy rain into the southeastern Midwest. And right now, uh, there is already some corn harvesting going on uh, to meet demand for late summer, early fall. And if that uh, heavy rain were to be more in the southeastern Midwest, you could start complicating that, uh, cause some damage to crops, and obviously, uh, disrupt this uh, early harvest. So there's uh, a concern there. Uh, so that's uh, one big feature with Hurricane Ida and uh, how it evolves. 
And uh, another feature is just the, you know, the ongoing incredible drought uh, that we see in the Northern Plains and then west to the West Coast, all the way through the entire Rockies and the Great Basin and the Pacific Coast. Uh, there's going to be some rain in the next uh, several days in uh, part of the Central Plains, including in eastern Nebraska, where I'm located, uh, and then into western Iowa, maybe north into parts of the Dakotas. But that's not solving uh, the drought. It's it's some short-term uh, relief, maybe moistening the ground up to offer maybe some late-season pasture growth, maybe a late hay cutting. I don't think we're adding anything to corn and soybean potential. Maybe it's allowing for uh, irrigation systems to be finally turned off for the season. And so that's that's all a benefit. I won't deny that. But as far as truly ending uh, the drought problems in the Northern Plains, we're not seeing that. Um, the Northern Plains, particularly North Dakota, in order to end the drought in three months, would have to have a total of about 11 inches of precipitation and more than 300% of normal, meaning that North Dakota would have to have triple its average precipitation in the next three months in order to end the drought, in order to, to replenish the soil profile. So that's one measure of how uh, dry things truly are. Um, I was in Colorado last week uh, for for a vacation and spent uh, about a week in uh, the Colorado Springs and uh, Estes Park areas. And conditions are truly dry. I mean, there is not, uh, there, there's hardly any uh, snow or, or even mountain glacier indication in the high mountains of, uh, of Rocky Mountain National Park. Uh, there are uh, concerns uh, across uh, the entire Colorado region about how the water supply is going to be. And every day that I was there, uh, there was some sort of an air quality alert because of fires uh, out of California and uh, Oregon bringing the smoke eastward. We've seen that uh, repeatedly. Uh, during the past uh, several months now because of fire season in the West. And we got to see the results of the Cameron Peak fire that happened a year ago in Rocky Mountain National Park and the, the uh, terrific damage and loss of uh, trees and vegetation that occurred from that. And uh, we know that uh, right now the Dixie Fire is still going on in California. And uh, the uh, Caldor fire in uh, northern uh, California in, in uh, the Lake Tahoe area is uh, still hitting its stride and uh, forcing some evacuation around there. So those are, those are several things, several big things that are happening that uh, are kind of keeping uh, my concern, uh, my attention meter uh, pretty high right now on a large scale basis. Talking a little bit more about those fires, we've seen smoke kind of all the way across the country from those fires, you know, all the way to the East Coast. I'm curious whether, are are you worried that that kind of drift of that kind of big atmospheric smoke could be affecting weather in other parts of the country? Well, it, it uh, actually could have helped uh, a little bit with corn conditions uh, during the, uh, the middle to mid-late summer because uh, all those little smoke particles likely uh, led to a scattering of uh, the, the sunlight and perhaps even uh, helped to lower the temperatures just a little bit, even in the drier uh, corn belt areas. Along with that, uh, the scattering of sunlight maybe allowed for some uh, more diffuse light to uh, move uh, into the canopy of the corn plants and uh, actually improve the uh, photosynthesis rate. Um, I did a blog about uh, two weeks ago 
that that looked at uh, the the smoke impact potential uh, for for this uh, particular feature and um, cited a study that was done by several scientists out at uh, University of California, Berkeley, about uh, six years ago, I believe. Um, and, and they found that, that there can actually be some benefit if the smoke density is not too great and if it doesn't last for you know, the entire summer season or, or that type of thing. But there can actually be some benefit. So it's a, it's a mixed impact. I think there, there certainly uh, has been some adverse effect on, obviously, air quality and uh, some, some effect on, on uh, respiratory conditions for livestock and for people. As, as, uh, regard, uh, as it regards plants, though, there may have actually been some benefits. So it's a, a real mixed effect. Uh, the, the, the main message that I see from all this smoke is that truly somewhere there is a fire. And I know that's trite, but that still is very true. And that means with all that smoke that we saw, and that we have seen and we continue to see, there is a terrible fire going on somewhere. And where that's happening, there is a lot of damage. And it speaks to just an incredible amount of dryness over a large, large area. And that's what we are seeing. Yeah, with the dryness, you know, especially, as you said, up in the in the Northern Plains, you talked about how much precipitation would be needed to get us out of this drought in the next, you know, three or four months. Given th- how unlikely that seems, what are the, you know, when you look at the likelihood of this drought extending for, you know, kind of an unknown period of time, wh- what does this look like to you? Does this look like something that could foreseeably, you know, next year might look significantly better? Or do you expect this to pers- persist? Well, Sarah, uh, I want to I want to approach that from a couple different uh, uh, angles, if I could. One of the um, features in terms of uh, crop production that I don't know has gotten a whole lot of attention in much of Middle America because we are so focused on the plains and the Midwest and the Delta, Southeast, and so forth. Basically, east of the Rockies, we are so focused on on the weather fortunes in in those regions that i think one one um little bit of a curveball that is uh possibly out there for this coming season is that in the pacific northwest the dryness may actually lead to a lower amount of acreage uh, that's planted to the winter wheat crop in that part of the country than we are accustomed to the reason I bring that up is that usually the northwestern United States winter wheat acreage is something that can be depended on because typically that part of the uh, country gets moisture. And yes, some years may be drier than others, but but most of the time you can depend on a given amount of acreage devoted to winter wheat in places like Oregon and Idaho and Eastern Washington. I don't know if that's going to happen this year. Uh, there have been uh, tremendous bouts of uh, heat and dryness. They had, there, there were two, two just debilitating heat waves that affected the Northwest this summer. And that leads to a question about how much moisture is in the ground to support the the growth and you know the germination early growth and all that of the winter wheat crop in the northwest so i think that that's a question and we have seen the wheat market react to uh dryness in the north and in the northwest uh we really saw it i believe out of the uh, august uh, usda crop report uh, not only in the u.s but also to our north in the canadian prairies so i think that's one question and then as far as, as how long it's going to take and, and will, this, uh, will this drought truly end, I, I think that 
that uh, we're going to have to pay a lot of attention to how things fare when we get into the last half of the winter season in 2021-22. Uh, uh, the, the atmospheric indicators in the Pacific Ocean are pointing to the development of at least a weak La Nina ocean temperature and pressure pattern that would reach its peak in uh, kind of the area around the end of the calendar year, late December, going into January, early next year. And if that happens, there is a tendency for La Nina in the Northern Hemisphere winter to lead to the uh, prospect for above average precipitation in the Northern tier of states, that is in the Northwest and in the Northern Plains. And uh, the, those uh, chances, I think, are going to get a lot of attention. But uh, for the next uh, several months, uh, dryness, drought, below normal precip, and above normal temperatures stay with us. And that just keeps the pressure on when it comes to soil moisture, uh, looking to the last uh, three months of this year. That's, that's good for harvest. There's no doubt about that. I mean, fall harvest, I think, is going to have pretty favorable conditions, a lot better than, than uh, two and three years ago when it uh, got so terribly wet and cold that it caused problems. And even last year, there was uh, some snow and cold uh, conditions in October that complicated things. I don't think we're going to have that to uh, have uh, cause a real impediment for this year. But the circumstances for really bringing some relief from a lack of soil moisture are still pretty unfavorable when we look ahead to the rest of this year. I'm curious to expound on that harvest question a little bit more because I think that's the other half of this. Um, you know, as you look to the Midwest in particular, as storms like the tropical storm Ida move up that way, are you worried about, uh, you know, wetness here in the next couple of months, really throwing a wrench in, you know, the harvest that's going on across the country? Well, I think I think we certainly could see that over the uh, southeastern part of the Midwest, especially. Uh, like I say, as, as we're visiting, the remnants of Ida are are likely to stay southeast of of uh, the the eastern Midwest. Uh, you know, kind of you know, kind of just barely getting to the uh, south bank of the Ohio River in northern Kentucky. And uh, certainly causing some problems in the Delta and in that Mid-South uh, region. But uh, like I say, if, the, if that uh, rain track moves even 50 miles to the north, then you're talking about getting into southern Illinois, southern Indiana, southwestern Ohio. And these are areas where, where for most of the season, rainfall has been quite plentiful and soil moisture has been better. They did have some drier conditions in the last week that may have uh, shaved a little bit of the yield potential. But overall, you know, it's definitely been better for rainfall in Illinois and Indiana than in Minnesota and the Dakotas uh, this year. There's no doubt about that, along with northern Iowa. But if that, uh, if, if uh, not only Ida, but subsequent storms form in the Gulf of Mexico and move northward, yes, there could be some real complications. And I, I think that, um, that, that that's something that we're going to take seriously, that I think everybody is just kind of, you know, sort of casting a little bit of a wary eye on, because this tropical season is, is now showing a pretty active trend here we are in late August, early September. We're already into the I uh, notation for the Atlantic and Gulf basins for the storm names. And that's showing that it's already a pretty active season with uh, likely more to come. And uh, the potential for those complications out of heavy rain, strong winds, you know, that's going to stay with us for a while. And, and again, considering how, how early it looks like a harvest could be, then we're talking about a, a real harvest uh, delaying potential if that develops. So yes, I think that's a real key feature to keep in mind. And as you look 
kind of around the country and, and how things are developing in these last few weeks in particular, you know, obviously supplies are very tight for all of the big commodities. I think wheat, most of all, but also soybeans and corn. Uh, when you look at USDA's figures and you look at the weather and how things have developed over the season, do you see um, any potential for, you know, maybe a little extra wiggle room on supplies where we might, you know, come in a little high? Or do you anticipate that, you know, levels will stay, given the droughts and the the difficulties this year, that th- levels will stay pretty, um, at, that there's not that much space up upside potential for uh, the crops that you're watching across the country? Yeah, I think the I think the uh, story has pretty well been written as far as the uh, the big weather market rally in corn. Uh, we saw that that to reach its peak in mid to late May, actually during the month of May, um, and that is very typical of a weather rally. May and June tend to be the times when when those markets uh, really reach their their top, and then after that, uh, different factors come into play that that sort of, uh, you know, turn the, turn the trend lower. And uh, we saw that this, uh, this summer as well. Uh, not everybody got uh, completely wiped out with, uh, with a, a real harsh uh, drought. I'm, I'm talking nationwide now. We know that there is some real bad damage in uh, the Northwestern Corn Belt. But on a, a large scale, uh, the, the uh, total crop size is still looking quite large, could be the second largest uh, on, on record. And along with that, there have been some uh, late season rains that have maybe helped to hold the line on uh, crop loss or crop uh, declines in uh, the Northwestern Belt. So, you know, that's been useful. Uh, so I think that uh, things have pretty well been dialed in uh, when it comes to production. I, I don't think that we're going to see a, a real big switch quite like we did last year, because a year ago uh, we had the catastrophic dairy show that uh, moved across across Iowa into Illinois and, you know, kind of just hit a real fat part of uh, of corn country last year. That event by itself uh, took uh, several, I want to say it took about five bushels an acre off the national yield because of its impact in Iowa. And that truly didn't get quantified until the annual report at the very end of the 2020 growing season that we saw in uh, January of uh, 2021. Well, we did not have a, a dare ratio this year. Uh, that's uh, that's thrown uh, this this uh, you know kind of uh, bowling ball uh, through the through the setup of yields, and so I think that there's going to be very uh, I, I think the changes are going to be uh, pretty limited because of that, and uh, we, like I say, we don't have this tremendous unknown that sat there for months until uh, there was actually some real quantification there. Bryce, we'll be right back to you right after this quick word from our sponsor. This episode of Field Post is brought to you by DTN Ag Marketplace. Marketing is a year-round business, but it's not your only job. As you focus on field work, monitor your opportunities, and easily make an offer with help from the free DTN Ag Marketplace app. DTN Ag Marketplace facilitates end-to-end grain sales on your schedule. From your mobile device, you can easily connect to local agribusiness to view current cash bids and futures to sell your grain. Need more accountability in your marketing program? The app lets you set goals and monitor progress and enter and track inventory. Start to confidently market your crops with DTN Ag Marketplace. Download it today for free in the Apple Store. Now, back to the show. And we're back with Bryce Anderson, Chief Meteorologist Emeritus at DTN Progressive Farmer. Bryce, well, I want to transition the second half of our uh, interview to talking a little bit about what's next for you. So uh, you are wrapping up your time after 30 years at DTN, uh, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. But um, you are, you know, looking ahead to retirement taking things a little bit slower, perhaps. Uh, so I'm curious, you know, as you are, I'm I'm so curious, you know, the last 30 years have been 
this the last 30 years compared to the 30 years before that are are kind of crazy to think about but i'm curious you know as you kind of approach the end of a very long and storied career what are you thinking about right now uh i'll be honest in in terms of uh, subject areas i'm i'm uh i'm thinking about uh how i can uh still offer some perspective uh when it comes to the impact of of uh climate change on agriculture, um, there, you know, this is uh, this is an ongoing feature that that uh, we we see the uh, the tentacles of each and every day. And as I'm visiting with you right now, the you know the Western fires, this uh, this uh, very significant drought, the way that Hurricane Ida just uh, kind of, you know, kind of exploded before making landfall. All of that uh, is related to the impact of, of climate change and its, its uh, effect on our atmosphere, on our water temperature, and consequently on extreme weather events as, as they form. And that's just here in, the, in North America. Uh, we have seen uh, debilitating drought in part of South America this year. The uh, Paraná River in Argentina uh, is at a 50-year historic low water flow. And uh, that is uh, in large part due to how dry things have been in south-central Brazil where the headwaters are. We know how uh, the record rainfall in Europe uh, caused incredible flooding. Uh, during this past summer and led to some uh, wheat quality loss. It has also been very dry in parts of Southern Europe and, and uh, outside of, uh, outside of production areas, the, the uh, ice sheets in the far North and even in Antarctica continue to show signs of breaking away and, and melting and, and, uh, and, you know, losing their volume. So, so there are all of these features that have an impact on agriculture. And uh, one of the uh, one of the things that I that I hope to do uh, for a while yet is uh, is offer uh, my input in terms of relating what scientists are finding, and as we saw in the uh, most recent. Uh, IPCC Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report. Uh, one of the things that that I think I can still bring to the table is is some agricultural perspective on those scientific findings that that can uh, be hopefully uh, communicated in in plain language and in in uh, meaningful uh, detail to. Uh, to the agricultural community, because there still is a need, I think, to make sense uh, in in an everyday "what does this mean to me" type basis uh, on uh, these these big topics as they relate to this industry. This is a very special and specialized industry, and uh, and uh, I think that uh, there's a, a place for that kind of perspective. That kind of storytelling, uh, if you want to say that kind of analysis, uh, I'm certainly good with that. And uh, I hope to be able to continue. Absolutely. I mean, important work. And that springboards me nicely into, you know, I'm curious how um, over the course of your career, but particularly in the last couple of years, it, I feel like there is definitely always a trade off in agriculture between kind of local weather and national weather trends or national kind of climate trends. And I'm curious how you, you know, when you're out talking to farmers or out, you know, looking at kind of weather on the ground, um, how has your thinking about the relationship between those two things evolved? Well, I, the, uh, the challenge uh, over the last uh, several years uh, has been to, to, um, to make sure that that uh, you know, big conclusions can can somehow be be
be made relevant to an individual's uh, particular location. And, and um, you know, one, one way that one piece of perspective that, that, uh, that helps me to make sense of all that is that when I look at a radar uh, map with the depiction of rainfall and uh, radar activity, we think about uh, the resolution of the colors that we see on the map. And the resolution uh, is, is basically around one square mile. Okay, so each little dot that you see on, on a radar graphic or you know, some sort of representation, each little dot is, is about one square mile. In, in some cases, a little bit more, but, but that's, that's a pretty decent average. You know, in, in, my, in my young days, you know, when I, was, when I was a farm kid in South Central Nebraska, I grew up in one pixel because uh, there, was a, there was a square mile that, that I knew a lot about. Like, like so many of our uh, DTN Progressive Farmer subscribers and, and listeners and readers and viewers, you know, you look at a pixel on a radar map, yeah, that, that, that's you. You can pick it out. You could probably pick it out. I'm not going to say blindfolded because you'd have to look at it, but you could, you could pick it out from probably 10 feet away. You wouldn't know where that pixel is. Well, that's the way I am in looking at Phelps County, Nebraska, where I grew up. I can do that. And that is something that I've tried to bring to you know, to talks that I give, to articles that I write, you know, because there, there's the recognition that, you know, you talk about the jet stream, you talk about all these, all these big uh, changes and, uh, and developments in our atmosphere for, for each of our readers and viewers and listeners and subscribers. The, the real meaning is in that one pixel. And if I keep that in mind, then a lot of the other details almost write themselves because that still is where truly everything comes together and uh, where things make sense. And that's where they have to make sense uh, in in how we, we discuss uh, the, the impact on on individuals from all of these big developments. I'm curious as well, because in kind of a similar vein, you know, I think because most of us use the weather daily and check on the weather daily, it's it's not easy always to tell when things are changed or how things have changed, when things have changed. So I'm curious over, you know, you were doing meteorology even before you started at DTN. Um, over the course of your career, could you just talk a little bit about how meteorological technology and science have changed or advanced or, you know, do we know more about weather now than we did, you know, 30, 40 years ago? Well, the, the, uh, the answer to that question of do we more, uh, do we know more about weather now than we did 40 years ago is an absolute yes. Uh, you know, the, the analytical, uh, prospects and the, the analytical tools that we have available now to look inside storms and to look above the atmosphere and to match all of the different elements that, that make weather uh, form and move and, and uh, evolve. All of those are just far, far beyond, I think, anybody's imagination uh, back in 1981 and 40 years ago. 40 years ago, when I truly started um, having, having a daily assignment of uh, weather graphic presentation in my, in my TV job, I was getting input for, for doing maps on a magnetic wall uh, where high pressure and low pressure centers had had a little magnet strip like like we have for uh, note 
uh, notepads and reminders uh, that we put on our refrigerator. That's what I used. And I was getting the input for that from, uh, from a special fax machine that was a printer that, uh, that took about uh, 15 minutes to line by line scribe out a weather map of the of the fronts and the pressure centers and then i had to look at that and uh figure out okay where does this where does this high pressure magnet go on this map bing where does this low pressure map go bing where is that magnetic strip where's that magnetic plastic strip that shows the cold front oh here it is how many of these do i need to curve this uh, front from northern Wisconsin south to southern New Mexico. Oh, I need about three of these. Okay, one, two, three. And uh, then, oh, there's, there's my nice cool front. So we went from that to now not only having uh, front frontal maps and uh, high pressure and low pressure maps over a seven-day period, but now we have uh, three-dimensional uh, storm analysis and satellite image presentation, not just here for uh, the middle of America or for the United States, but you know, basically anywhere in the world practically. Uh, so yes, there's a lot more that we know about the weather and forecast accuracy, particularly in the next seven days, is getting better and better. Uh, and the 10-day uh, time period is showing more accuracy. The 14-day is probably about where the seven-day accuracy was maybe about 10 years ago. Now, you get farther out and there still are uh, things that can happen that get in the way of a forecast presentation in terms of, you know, it, its uh, accuracy and, and its, uh, it, its pinpointing of, of where things are going to happen. But uh, there is no doubt that that uh, weather information is is uh, just uh, in and of itself much more accurate uh, than it was uh, when I, like I say, when I first uh, started these daily exercises 40 years ago. It's come uh, a long ways and, and far past, I think, anybody's uh, real wildest uh, uh, boundaries of imagination. And you mentioned, you know, I think a key part of this whole equation, which is that farmers, because of the way that markets work, because of the way that decision making works in 2021, are not just watching the weather in their little pixel, they're watching the weather in their in their region and across the nation, but also around the world. And I wonder how you, um, you basically like think about, you know, how should or how how do you keep track of, you know, a whole globe of changing weather and, and try to keep that in perspective, but also, you know, how much of that do you think is relevant for, for an individual producer to be kind of keeping track of? Well, I think that, that uh, particularly over the last uh, five years of, of my day-to-day -day work at DTN, the, the uh, ongoing uh, weather pattern in Brazil and Argentina certainly became a day-to-day -day feature from about uh, the middle of November through the 1st of June the following year because of their their importance to the markets. I mean, you know, the, the country of Brazil is basically matching the United States in corn and soybean production and and uh, it effectively, you know, starts in with uh, dominating the market scene, the market weather scene, in that late fall uh, time period, all the way through the the um, middle of of the following year, calendar wise. And Argentina is a big feature in uh, December, all the way through probably March and April. Uh, so that's just gotten to be more and more of of uh, of a topic. And this past year, uh, when there was uh, so much recognition of how things could be stressful in Brazil from the very beginning of their planting season in mid-September last year, 
there was day-to-day attention on Brazil that lasted now. It's kind of let up in late July, but my goodness, it it uh, had a shelf life of close to an entire calendar year. And that was because of the drought in Brazil that threw the whole cycle of crop production off and then led to problems with soybean production, but especially with corn production. And, you know, we saw the markets, uh, you know, take on uh, that kind of urgency, which of course means that producers were wanting to keep track as well because it had an influence on price and on and uh, demand from China factored into that as well. Where was China going to get all of its supplies? Well, it couldn't go to Brazil. It would have to go to the United States and, and all of that uh, factored in. So, so between uh, the weather side of DTN and our market analysis side of DTN, I think that uh, we uh, kind of collaborated in, in keeping that, uh, that urgency, that importance uh, pretty high on producer lists. And uh, then this uh, last summer, the, the importance of dryness in the Black Sea region, Russia, Ukraine, into uh, the Siberia region of uh, the former Eastern uh, Bloc or the uh, former Soviet Union uh, Eastern areas, you know, that, uh, that got more attention as well. And so I, you know, I, I think that there, that there are kind of four big regions that, that I thought about over the last uh, several years, North America, U.S. Canadian prairies, South America, Brazil, Argentina, uh, the Black Sea region, and then Australia, because uh, the Australia wheat crop scenario can be uh, a real a real issue, a real swing factor in the world wheat market. Um, frankly, Europe. I have not paid as much attention to on a day-to-day basis because uh, so much of the Europe production is, um, you know, pretty well uh, government program oriented. And uh, there's, there's uh, to me, just a, you know, an, an occasional real market impact. But what happens in the Black Sea Australia, South America, and, and of course here in North America, really have have been the the big features that have uh, affected grain market thoughts. Uh, as you look back over your career, any particularly crazy moments or opportunities or stories you've told come to mind is just like, you know, whether you knew it at the time or only know it looking back now, but just like, what were the biggest weather stories you've covered? Well, I'm glad you asked that, Sarah, because I was thinking about that, you know, before we we started. Um, right away, very very shortly after. Well, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna back up all you know clear into uh, you know the you know the real you know, you know the real back roads of of my my active days if I if I can. Uh, just right out of the gate. In my in my very first year of uh, at that time being a radio farm broadcaster in uh, Dubuque, Iowa, there was a drought in 1976, and uh, so that you know that right there was uh, you know a big weather feature uh, to contend with. A few months before that, uh, there was an ice storm that uh, that uh, caused uh, extensive power outage in the upper Midwest. And at that time, it uh, truly affected uh, operations for a lot of dairy producers in northeastern Iowa, southwestern Wisconsin, and led to my first radio story as a uh, as a full time uh, in uh, as a full time farm broadcaster that that really got any um, any um, any real uh, play, so to speak, and it was it was just local, but uh, truly got some reaction because I I went to 
uh, the farm of a dairy producer who had had a power outage and had uh, been forced to uh, to try to cobble together some some sort of uh, of of uh, emergency action in order to uh, to keep from having his entire uh, cow herd damaged uh, by the storm. And I did the interview in his kitchen and you could hear him crying on the recording because he was so concerned about the welfare of his livestock in coping with that weather event. And I bring this up because Again, that was just uh, an example of these things happen and and they are they are affecting people not just in their head, but in their heart and and truly in their soul. And you got to remember that all the way through. And and so that was a real uh, that, that was a real bellwether, if you will, for me. Uh, following that, uh, there was uh there were several uh, occurrences of incredible flooding in uh, the Midwest in uh, the late 1970s to deal with. Uh, there was a very harsh drought in 1980 uh, that caused, at that time, corn to reach $4 a bushel for the first time in, in, uh, in a lot of people's memories. Um, there was a terrible drought in 1983 uh, where uh, where uh, grain prices, uh, you know, just uh, took off uh, in uh, 1986 and 87. There were some pretty wet years to deal with, and a record drought in 1988 that still is in the memory of uh, some of our listeners. In the 1990s, the thing that's the uh, feature that uh, really stands out to me was the uh, incredible flood in the Mississippi Valley and in, in the Missouri Valley in 1993. Along with that, the uh, Mount Pinatubo eruption in the Philippines that basically affected uh, weather patterns for two years around the world. Uh, the mid-1990s had a very harsh heat wave uh, in the Midwest that uh, caused uh, many, many uh, fatalities in uh, Chicago and uh, led to uh, a, a real reduction in terms of corn uh, yield, kind of right in the middle of the growing season. Uh, 1997, we had tremendous uh, floods in the northern Midwest. 2000 had a harsh drought uh, in the north. Uh, we had partial droughts in 03 and 2005. And then we started to get into flooding and uh and uh, very, uh, you know, very uh, heavy rains in 2008, along with, uh, you know, the hurricane activity uh, that uh, Hurricane Katrina was a big part of uh, back in 2005, 2010 through 2012, La Nina, harsh drought. And then we started to get into this cycle uh, or this occurrence, I should say, of you know, several occurrences of very heavy rainfall and uh, more dryness and the bomb cyclone that hit the, the Western Midwest in 2019 and uh, now uh, drought in the West and uh, hurricane activity in the South uh, here in 2021. And of course, in between the uh, tremendous deratio that occurred in the Midwest last year. So, I think I've had a full plate. Uh, you know, I think there have been, I, I think the, I, I think the uh, shopping uh, cart or the, or the uh, truck, uh, the truck bed, uh, was pretty well filled up with with uh, many features and and uh, and many events that uh, that got my attention and hopefully I I brought some useful details uh, to to all of our our friends uh, who participate in, in DTN-related uh, activity uh, as they occurred. That is such a valuable look back. You know, I think 
conversations, modern conversations tend to revolve around how severe weather has gotten in the recent past and how quickly it changes and how, you know, what kind of impact it's having. And I think it's good um, to remember as part of that conversation that weather has always been or has been pretty severe for a while uh, and, you know, has wild and unpredictable swings. But, you know, as part of that, I'm curious, uh, as my last question, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, a lot of rains are being handed over to a new generation of farmers in, in the last few years and in the next few years. Uh, and I'm curious as, you know, if you were to give advice to new or relatively young producers uh, who are thinking about how to manage um, the weather, how to keep track of the weather, how, you know, how they should be thinking about the weather um, as part of their, as a, as a, a feature of their operation, uh, what advice do you have for them? Well, I think the one thing that I would, you know, that I encourage uh, a, a next generation producer group to do is to uh, be sure to to read uh, and and actually to write, because uh, it's so it, it's so easy right now to to just look at a printout or uh, a spreadsheet number and and say, okay, that's my decision. And I think that it's important to, to uh, actually read uh, commentary, read articles, read perspective uh, in order to, to get the full picture uh, and the scope of, of what's going on. In other words, let's not, let, let's not depend just on, on our, you know, on whatever device we use to to uh, to give us uh, you know a set of numbers or a forecast, because uh, that doesn't necessarily give the entire picture. And I think that it's useful to do that because um, just uh, you know just seeing you know the the information for a particular area doesn't necessarily give the the whole perspective of what's going on. And so that that's the one thing I think I would say is, uh, you know, be sure to to look for uh, the the general perspective, the general layout, the general view, in addition to the important local details in order to uh, get a full appreciation of what's going on and what's likely to go on. You can see Bryce's current and historic reporting on all things weather at DTNPF.com or in the monthly DTN Progressive Farmer magazine. You can also follow him on Twitter at at BAndersonDTN. This episode of Field Post was brought to you by the team at DTN Progressive Farmer, with special thanks to Bryce Anderson. This episode was produced and edited by me, Sarah Mock, with support by Greg Hillier and Kylie Swanson. And a big thanks to all of you for listening. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And until then, remember, the future of farming is here. This episode of Field Post is brought to you by DTN Ag Weather Station. Are you looking to get more accurate, hyper-local weather information? By gathering weather and agronomic data directly from your own fields, DTN Ag Weather Station supports you when making targeted decisions around expensive or high-risk activities like chemical applications and irrigation. DTN's Ag Weather Station can be purchased for as low as $9 a month depending on your current customer status with DTN. If you're looking to increase your weather accuracy while saving time, please visit DTN.com.